You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 96 for October 26th, 2016. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we air the first ever live recording of the podcast from the Great Basin Anthropological Conference in Reno, Nevada. It's in the book room while people are packing up, so there are some interesting noises. Hopefully it's not too bad. So get ready for the next live recording in Vancouver for the SAAs in March, because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the Sierra Archaeology Podcast. Joining me today, live from the Great Basin Anthropological Conference in Reno, Nevada, is Chris Sims. Hi. Sonia Hutmacher. Hello. Bill White. Howdy. And Michael Ashley. Hello. And I only hope the audio is working out, so that's uh, that's a good thing. So we're we're just we're at the very end of the conference. It's just ending now. The book room is packing up. That's what you can hear right now. Uh, we've been sitting at the codify mostly codify slightly apn pcs booth um, but we've been really having some some good conversations with people so i think i'll start with you michael um what's been your you've never been to a gbac before great basin conference um what's been your impressions of it and the people coming through and the reception to paperless archaeology well i guess i'd say first of all i kind of regret not coming to uh to gbac sooner Great group of people. Um, clearly, lots of folks saying this is their favorite conference. I get why. It's nice to have a conference that's just focused on one area. Um, and but the reception to what we are trying to do with uh, kind of getting people kicking and screaming into the 21st digital century has been overwhelmingly <laughs> positive. We haven't. I haven't heard a single bad thing about it. Some interesting questions we could get into about what we mean by paperless and it's like again we're not trying to eliminate paper or make us less archival we're talking about putting paper in its place and and just trying to produce better archaeology that's been the main mantra Mm -hmm. and i i I mean we've been doing this for a while and this is the best reception we've ever had absolutely and it had nothing to do with giving away a thousand dollar ipad in case <laughs> no i mean every, every single person that came to gbac got a free thousand dollar ipad it was pretty amazing oh, wait, so it didn't happen so come to the next conference <laughs> <laughs> but maybe next year our business cards are actually ipad mini fours right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh one thing we were talking about which i want people to hear about this um when they're thinking about what conferences to go to in the upcoming conference season is you know, GBAC, everybody here was focused and was actually a potential client or customer of ours because it's a very specific thing, whether they're academic or CRM, they're all doing the same thing out here in the Great Basin versus a larger conference like the SAAs where you have to actually kind of shift your focus on what you talk about and what you're going to deal with because anybody from around the world, quite frankly, could show up to your booth and, and you know, you have to have something to talk to them about or or have a shorter thing to get them out of the way so somebody who can actually benefit from your service is you know doesn't just walk by your booth so yeah um it's a different approach for but, sure i mean you know, we, we've been we started um, exhibiting if you will uh at the saa starting in 2011 as a center for digital archaeology mm-hmm. and um, it's the same drill it's like you know everyone's there it's like yeah i'm an i'm a you know 18 year old undergraduate or i'm a you know 90 year old you know, retiree or never yeah. in between yeah. um so one way of looking at it is it's what we're trying to all do is level up the field is um we're trying we're all I think trying to figure out how to make all of those exchanges more valuable and it's right. really hard to do when you have five or six thousand people coming to an SAA. 
So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll keep that in the hat now. I think we're, we've come out some really good news for how to disrupt. Vancouver's going to be amazing. Yeah. So uh, just while we're talking about this, the next conference that Codify will be at with some PCS and APN integration is the Southeastern Archaeological Conference at the last weekend of October in Athens, Georgia. So, and, uh, and then moving on from there. So uh, keeping with the booth just a little bit in the book room, Chris, you've been helping us out. Um, you kind of showed up on Thursday afternoon, got the quick and dirty, and have been in the booth and helping us out. What's been your impressions? Yeah. Uh, well, I guess to agree with what you had mentioned about uh, the real value of the smaller regional conferences, uh, most of the people here in the Great Basin are more or less working on the same kind of things. Yeah. And so, you know, there's so much to learn from each other in this, whereas at a larger conference, I mean, you can always learn from somebody, you know, there's, there's lessons and whatnot to learn, but you know, it's like you'll have a, a classicist and a Mayanist and somebody working on, you know, early hominid archaeology or somebody in Chile working on, you know, the first peopling of the Americas, you know, there's not as much like potential for collaboration and like kind of, you know, mutual ground to share. And, yeah. Uh, this conference has been amazingly fun. It's my first time at the Great Basin Archaeology Conference. It's been amazing for me just because, uh, you know, for some people like Sonia here, it's my first time actually seeing them in person yeah. after, you know, me too. talking to Sonia for <laughs> almost two years now on the CRM Archaeology Podcast. But, uh, you know, like so many other people, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm living out west here, working out west here. And like you had said, there's so many potential clients collaborators, employers, stuff like that. So it's been really cool to, you know, kind of be a part of the community, like face to face. All right. So one unique thing about doing the show face to face and not over Skype is I get the unique pleasure of knowing that Bill and Sonia are just seething with comments that they would be normally typing in the background <laughs> chat, Skype chat. And they just can't do that right now, no. so they're just sitting there, and then just it's all pen up. So, Sonia, uh -oh. what 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 are your thoughts on the conference? Uh, so far, so good. Um, yeah. I thought it was going to go till tomorrow, so that was a little <laughs> bit of my misunderstanding. So, yeah, I'm going to be in Reno for another day. Nice. Um, uh, overall, great. I really enjoyed uh, meeting everyone yeah. here. Mm -hmm. This has been fantastic because we spoke spoken on the phone and via Skype yeah. for ages now. And we've worked with, we've worked together for what, almost three years? Three years probably, yeah. So this is the first time we've met and um, getting to know you more on a personal level rather than a kind of a Skype now. Yeah. Uh, so this is your last levels. podcast is what you're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I not. I would never do something like that. Well, maybe, depends. <laughs> but uh, in terms of the conference, um, I got to see some excellent um, presentations by um, people that I know and people that I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've also gotten to see people here that I haven't seen in ages, right. um, in 10 plus years. And it's great to see them again. It's great to um, to think, you know, wow, we've aged like 10 years, but yeah. uh, you know, we still look the same and act the same and sound the same. Uh, we've just grown a lot more. Nice. So that's been, that's been really fantastic. Awesome. And how about you, Bill? You rolled in uh, Wednesday night and sent me a text and says, so what does one do in Reno? I didn't even know you were going to be here. I thought you'd say bowling right away. Like, <laughs> bowling. <laughs> bowling, man. National Stadium. Bowling. That's right. After right. this, I am actually going to go bowling. Nice. Gambling, actually. So uh, you've well, also done a little bit of that. Yeah. Last night, I donated a lot to <laughs> the city of Reno and to the uh, Silver Legacy. <laughs> I will not be getting that back. 
and it's not tax deductible, but still, I, you know, anything I can do to contribute to keep this fabulous place going, I'll do it, right? Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks, I, thanks for taking the hit. That's right. Any, anytime. Anytime. <laughs> yeah, I spent a little bit of time gambling and playing cards and stuff and realized that now I know why I don't like doing it because I'm not good at it. Nice. <laughs> How many statistics classes have you taken? Uh, yeah. The one they made me take. Just so, one? Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean, they, they made me take it and it was about like artifacts and excavation and stuff like that. No so, card counting? Yeah, there was no card counting involved. Yeah. So you were you were here for an actual reason, though. What did you present on on Friday? Uh, I gave a talk on what I did for my dissertation, the River Street Archaeology Project. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I've given about five talks on River Street, and each one of them slightly different. And this time I really talked about how a public archaeology project can address the issues regarding race in the United States. And um, the biggest problem is that the way that we have been discussing race, at least in the media, sets up a dialectic where uh, there's no real winners because if you choose one side, it's assumed that you've closed your mind to the whole other side of the story. You know, and we live in a really complicated world and there's uh, big issues, much bigger issues than, um, you know, carving out racial differences. But because we emphasize that and focus on that, it prevents us from coming together and having common ground. So a project like River Street, bringing together different constituencies to learn about the heritage of a, uh, a mixed minority, working class, immigrant neighborhood. It helps people address these kind of things and think about a comp this complicated issue in a way that is not like confrontational, there's not protests going on. You can learn about another culture that you're not part of, and you can really, in a constructive way, address something that's a real problem in the United States. So that's what I talked about here at the uh, Great Basin. But I, I saw some other amazing talks. Yesterday, I saw a whole session on um, traditional ecological knowledge. And not just about plants, but also about landscapes and how that all is intertwined with culture. It was you know, just really great to hear that series of uh, talks. I think my favorite one so far might have been about land speculation and people in the early 18, well, in the early 1900s doing crazy land shenanigans here in Nevada. And I mean, we all see these newspaper articles about land speculating, you know, coming, this town's popping up. But then when someone shows the reality of, yeah, this is the middle of nowhere and there actually is no water and there are no trees and it is a place no one wants to actually be at, it kind of puts it into a bigger perspective about these boom towns and what was happening to people and how it was even like going to the highest levels of the state. You know, there's senators, there's, you know, U.S. congressional members that are either endorsing or not endorsing or they're part of these whole land schemes. It's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we call them like real estate investors and they're kind of not allowed to do that kind of stuff that they were doing back then. But back then, what they called a real estate investor was sometimes just a straight charlatan that was ripping people off. Right. Yeah. And uh, like you were saying about seeing people you haven't seen in a long time, it's great to see a lot of my former co-students. They've got families. They're, you know, working jobs. Uh, that's also another thing that's interesting to talk about how long it takes to get to that point where people think, you know, finally I'll be above the law when I get to this position and I'm the one who's making the decisions for this 
forest and now I'll be in charge, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's been 15 years. <laughs> it took him that long to be the supervisor. Right, right. So that's like, you know, if you're not willing to stick with it for more than a decade, you probably won't get to that decision-making level. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Any comments on any of this? Well, I think it's pretty cool that uh, Bill's going to become a water baron in Arizona. Yeah, we have discussed that, yeah. Yep. I think it's really all about water in Arizona, which makes sense. Yeah. After thousands of years, it's yeah, it was all about water. water. I don't know why I haven't just started doing that anyway. Nice. One of the other things that we've talked about a little bit is uh, education. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And the status of uh, young archaeologists coming out of college and um, coming into the real world and uh, getting their first job and then whether or not they know to how to actually do that job. So that's been a huge struggle for a lot of uh, a lot of companies yeah. and a lot of supervisors, people feeling like they have to train their bosses, which yeah. is completely ridiculous. So, you know, a lot of a lot of discussion about training and education and what we can do to help that. Right. At this conference it's really it was this is not the first time we've talked about uh, education and the problem that we're having teaching students. At this conference, there's mostly archaeologists that work for agencies, CRM companies, and because it's regional, there's really only so many universities that will be here, right? But at the big national ones, there's a huge element of professors that are at these conferences. Mm-hmm. So to have that kind of a talk. Right. A lot of the minds are just seriously like shut off. Like, I am already doing so much at my university. It's preposterous that you'd say I'm not preparing my students. I cannot hear this and I won't hear it. And then the other half of the room is people who are saying, yeah, I'm sick of training people again and again to do the same things. I mean, the compass use keeps coming up again and again. Writing keeps coming up again and again. But at the national conference, a big portion of the people just cannot, they can't think about it. Here at the local conferences, much fewer university representation, a lot of students who want to learn more, and a lot of the people who end up hiring archaeologists, and they're they're receptive. And they keep saying, yeah, yes, this needs to be fixed, that needs to be fixed. So this is the kind of venue where that actually can be addressed in a fruitful manner, I don't think that it can happen at the big Yeah, it's well people at people at big conferences ended up regionalizing anyway with who they talk to and the papers they go see. You know, every time I went to the SAAs before I started doing booth and APN stuff was uh, I just go to all the Great Basin sessions. Yeah. Because you know, that's where I work. Yeah. So it's like what's what's the point even if I'm not going outside my Yeah. My, you know where I want to where I want to see. So. Yeah, all the SAA conferences I've been to, I end up hanging out with a bunch of Mayanists. And, yeah, and I'm like, well, why don't I just go to the regional Mayan conferences? <laughs> yeah. Save myself a few hundred yeah. dollars and use the SAs for maybe learning something new. Yeah, yeah. You know, think outside the box. Well, going back to the education thing, um, a lot of this really, in fact, is not fair for professors putting the burden on training them you know at the university because teaching is part of their job a big part but uh, writing and publishing and providing service for the university is an even bigger portion so they really have kind of like three duties service to the university and the community publishing and expanding knowledge and teaching well that's one of three things and if we're saying you know you need to be emphasizing the teaching more that needs to be what you're doing 
they'll say, okay, well then what am I supposed to do? What do you, what do you guys want me to teach? Mm-hmm. You give them several different things and they'll try like the best that they possibly can, but they are spread thin at the yeah. university, right? So that, something else all. has that's to step true. into the gap. It's true, but um, I don't know what your, your agenda is for the podcast, but there what, is the, in, the, in, the, in, in the session that the Chris was chairing, the argument in the 21st century, um, the last session, the last paper was was Chris is on the PCS and on yeah. on looking at this, and they, it was an incredibly lively conversation afterwards. Yeah. It's probably worthy of a multi-hour uh, session into itself. Whoa, and recall some of the things that came up in that were the the training that's happening for those that will go out and try to get jobs at CRM is basically non-existent. This has been a thing that's been said at the SAAs for literally like the last 20 years. It's not getting addressed. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, if, if we're, if you either, either, and again, you know, I was at Cal forever, um, and they're now doing some pretty great workshops, but the actual practical graduate program is is absolutely theoretical. It's a theoretical school, we get that, but there's just not enough Sonoma States and Brigham Young Universities to go around. We have to come up with another way to give people the training so that they don't come out here and do crappy archaeology, which is what's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that I've noticed is that a lot, a lot of the universities, or a lot of the state in the states, uh, applied archaeology or applied anthropology programs, which is what we see in cultural resource management. Applied, we're touching it, we're going out, we're doing it, we're reporting it, we're not doing research unless we're doing mitigation. Um, those programs are limited to maybe one university or one institution per state. That's what's allotted. If we would like to say that out of the hundred percent of archaeologists that are graduating, 80% of them go to uh, go into CRM. That means we need to up the number of universities that in our states that teach applied archaeology. And uh, we're not doing that right now. We're putting out very few students with some level of basic skill coming out into the profession. So we're still ending up with, with a good percentage without, without basic field skills to do the CRM. Yeah. And like uh, Sonia and I had had uh, quite a few conversations yesterday about the frustrations that like you as an owner or, you know, I've been in the situation too. I think we all have as, as like field supervisors where, yes, you do have an obligation to develop early career archaeologists professionally, but I mean, how much, how much do you really need to do if, you know, like you have expectations that archaeologists are going to pick up some skills in their universities so you know there's a lot of kind of like you know gaps and like missing links there where you know like the conversation keeps coming up but you know programs like PCS are going to be incredibly important for that and you know all the other like kind of extracurricular modules where people can learn and I, I don't know is it fair to say that uh Archaeologists are going to have to, like field techs, are going to have to start picking these skills up on their own to demonstrate that you know, they're competitive. I, I mean, there has to be a complete shift in what. I mean, there needs to be an overall shift in the educational system to create the kind of individual that's going to thrive in the 21st century. I mean, there is no such thing as a job anymore. Every single person is in marketing. They're in sales. They're in, like, you know, accounting. That is their job. So whether you want to go to school for sports medicine or outdoor recreation or whatever, whatever you choose, 
the idea that you will go to college and become a worker is dead and they really need to address that and when you yeah. start addressing that then all of a sudden the education changes and uh it's the, the professors will teach what they can they're going to do their best but if you aren't trying to create the kind of adult that the world needs mm-hmm. and you're just trying to create someone who's doing what they're supposed to to get a degree so that they can get a job so they can go to their job and do what they're supposed to they're not actually in fact developing that the business they work for, they're not even thinking about doing, you know, anything above and beyond the bare minimum. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of that, I mean, young people will do what it takes to, you know, survive uh, if they have good examples and there's a complete mental shift in the role of education, then I think that will actually, you know, you'll start seeing some of these things played out. But until that happens... If yeah. it ever happens. Yeah. Well, and that's that's where I see PCS in the future. Is I I still think there's a good, I think there's a good role that universities can play in the education system, especially if somebody comes right out of high school and they go into college. Which, you know, I almost like the Israeli model better, where they do the military or something for a few <laughs> years, you know, and then they go into college. They get a little adult in them, you know. I went yeah. into the military for four and a half years, and then and then went into college, you know, and did yeah. some other things. But um, and I felt that going as an older older student you know help me out but oh yeah. yeah i i see i see i see the future as being you know not four years of college but maybe two two and a half years of college that give you a foundation in in studying and schedules and you know really kind of gives you those skills yeah. that you need and maybe sort of a background and then and then more of an a la carte approach to the rest of what you do yeah. you know like you can go to a place like pcs and say okay rather than taking all these random archaeology and anthropology classes like i went to a pretty small department and there wasn't a lot to offer you know you, you max out the classes pretty quickly yeah and and a lot of schools are like that but then some schools have a lot to offer and that's great but you can't always go to those so yeah you know i just took everything that they had whereas if i had pcs i could have i could have specialized and, and learned what i wanted to learn and and done that so that's kind of how i i see it moving on in the future one of the things that i've noticed is uh, about this uh, whole education Mm-hmm. Uh, is is that a lot of us are, are moving toward our education needs to be self-driven. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm, I'm going to point to this camera over here and I'm going to talk <laughs> in this microphone and I'm going to tell you guys as that thing was on. <laughs> field technicians, crew chiefs, field directors, project managers, you, in order for you to sell yourself and for you to move forward, you need to take the initiative and learn something new. Teach yourself. Yeah. You're not going to get everything you need from college or university. You need to go out. You need to go uh, Google or YouTube how to use a shaker screen. Yeah. You know, you need to uh, to do some research on, well, what does uh, overhead mean and yeah. utilization. Yeah. Yeah. Start, start looking into things. That's how you're going to move forward. Don't expect that everything will be given to you. Yeah. You need to learn on your own learn from other people and take it yeah i think it's important to emphasize learning from other people too like you need a mentor everybody needs a mentor and you know it's it's a skill to mentor somebody but it's also a skill to be a good mentoree or whatever the right word is like you've got to kind of keep your mentor you know you've got to demonstrate to your mentor that like you're learning something. You're mm-hmm. growing. It has to be rewarding for your mentor to keep working. So, if you find a good mentor, yeah, you know, reward them for it. Yeah. That's a. I'm in the Civil Air Patrol too, and one of the 
we have cadets, um, and cadets are anywhere from 12 to technically 21 years old, but typically 18. And uh, one of the things they have to do for their achievements to advance and to move on is they have to give uh, like a five to 10 minute oral report, for lack of a better word, uh, in front of the seniors at, in the squadron, the adults, on the difference between leadership and followership. And they yeah. have to demonstrate that they understand what that means. You know, because a lot of them get in, they put on a uniform, they get a little bit of rank, and then they start bossing around the people that are immediately under them, who they were just a part of, and they don't understand that, sure, you know, okay, you can, you have a little bit of superiority over them, but there's also a whole bunch of people that you have to learn from and, yeah. and, and play and as a team. And watching you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And they're more likely to raise someone up right. who has a more uh, teamwork mentality. Right. Than, uh, than they are to someone who's just bossing someone else around. Right. I guess I'll ask the just the underlying question. What do we do? Most people do not actually want to become leaders or <laughs> go the extra mile or which is fine. Put in extra work, right? So how are we? I mean, what's the role of people who want to just work? Is there room for them in the future? Yeah, at least in archaeology. Is there room for the person who just wants to be a tech and that's all they want to do? They don't want to learn all this extra stuff. They just want to be a tech that's pretty good at their job and then go home and live their life. Like they want to treat yes. this like it's like a nine to five job. Well, I think, what do we do with that person? I think there's plenty of room because with companies like the last podcast we put up, um, Arc Tech Logistics, I mean, they are a company formed and we, we talked about doing this with PCS and they're already doing it. They're a company formed to basically employ full-time field technicians that work across the country. And and, and as we talked to, to Sean about integrating PCS certification in the future, these are these are no longer just like, I mean, every one of us knows, uh, uh, by the way, everybody's packing up the book room right now. So yeah, that's, that's, that's tape sounds. It's not flashing. It's not yeah. Santa. Yeah. It's <laughs> not <laughs> Christmas. This microphone's pretty good and focused, and hopefully most of that's not coming in. But anyway. Even if you um, listen to it at Christmas, we weren't right. wrapping your presents. No, we weren't. We weren't <laughs> no, no. You're, this you is get nothing. This is, this the is gift, your gift. Right. But anyway, um, and we're talking to him. Yeah. We were talking to him, and every one of us knows, in fact, I've seen a few here in the last couple of days, those people that have just been field techs since the late 70s, right? Yeah. They've been field techs for career, and they love it. They love doing that, but I think I think the time for that in particular, at that skill level, is probably over um, it pretty quickly. But but the time of the the highly advanced specialist, like you, you hear in IT and stuff, you know, the Windows certified specialist and things like that, I, I don't see any problem why we wouldn't see, you know, um, specialist archaeological field technicians working for companies like this. And rather than rather than a company going to Architect Logistics or whoever and saying, I need four random field technicians to work in wherever, yeah. they're going to be like, I need a GIS specialist that's also an archaeologist. I need oh, yeah. somebody who's a, a lithic specialist, and I need somebody who's a photogrammetry specialist, and I need somebody who's a whatever I have, you know, a, a historic mining feature specialist. Yeah, and I Not need just, all of them to do the survey or whatever it is, and I also right. need at least one of them to help write the report. Exactly, and they have all these skill sets, and they're just highly, highly trained, very focused, you know, black ops style field crews that just yeah. go out there and they get the job done. I think that's where those people are going to excel. 
Well, so then essentially you're saying the one who wants to treat it like a nine to five, that's going extinct. No, if you don't specialize, you're in trouble. Not necessarily, but I think I think you're going to be you're going to be hard pressed to compete for jobs if you're not going to treat it seriously and and be constantly learning. You're less likely to have a full time job. It's the same as any industry. Get any oh yeah, that definitely. Yeah, you're going to hit a glass or a, a, not even a glass ceiling. You're going to hit a ceiling on your pay. Right. Let me let me just throw a counter not a counterpoint but another another thing. I mean. At Cal, starting in the late 90s, uh, we we developed uh, this thing called the Multimedia Authoring Center for Teaching and Anthropology. And we basically um, started teaching digital cultural heritage and anthropology classes. The, our, our opening line in these classes was, you're going to do the equivalent of like a 30-page research paper and it's gonna take you all of your time and I would just expect you now to drop all of your other classes. And everyone who took those classes thrived and loved it because they were doing everything you just described. They're teaching each other, they're doing something they'd never done before. They're gonna learn how to do film. That does you can learn how to use flash or all the other kinds of technologies. You have to learn how to do good storytelling. You have to learn how to do interviews. Get people during the, the housing crisis going out to Fremont, talking to, you know, to Stockton and, and talking to people. and. Uh, you know, the 99%, all those things. So that's one thing. So the second part that, to that would be, though, what we're looking at with these little like, kind of micro things that are happening with BCS, I just think it's the future because it's not just specialization in the big, bit large way, like I'm going to go get 17 PhDs. It's more like I now know how to do something specific. We're saying today, like I now know, not me, but I do know, but uh, how to take a photograph that will be specifically um, uh, archival quality for the BLM in Nevada, that, that, that level of thing, like being able to do that level of specialization at a micro level and the achievement unlock concept. You know, we yeah. just saw the rave that happened with Pokemon Go. Everyone's like raging around, running around. It was kind of a crazy phenomenon because you, you want the ability not to compete so much and to get that achievement. You know, I think that I always hear this, you know, from someone talking about these things. It's like, it isn't just about go out there and do this so that you can get your job. It's also like, you will feel better at the end of the day. I mean, who wants to spend a nine to five job? I've been able to motivate everyone on my team ever who, yes, you just spent nine to five, you, you did your eight hours, you clocked in, you clocked out. I'm not expecting you to do overtime, but I'm expecting you to always be learning. And if you're not gonna do that, you are gone. Yeah, yeah. And most people don't need the threat. The carrot's there. Like, I'm having so much fun, I'm doing this. It should also be fun. It can be fun. Yeah. It's really okay. Well, and like, like a lot of industries where, um, you know, as we, as we move forward and and things and things start to change, um, all the tape sounds. Um, as we move forward and things start to change, and industry starts to change, and uh, and our jobs start to change, there's few of us that are needed in, in different areas. Now, right now, we're in, especially in Nevada, we're in a low period. All the companies are downstaffed. You know, they're uh, they're just trying to stay surviving until the next boom happens for whatever reason. And. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they're just trying to stay alive until the next, you know, until they can they can staff back up again. But that might not ever happen. And if that's the case, then the people that want to keep doing this are going to have to level up. And I think it's a good thing for the field yeah. overall. I yeah. mean, some people are going to be out, but it's probably the people that need to be out. And and they don't have the drive and motivation to do this, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is one of those things you do because you love it. And when you stop yeah. loving it, just stop doing it because. Right. Yeah. 
why waste your only life on something you don't really like anymore? Well, and that's true because we've all we've all been there and we've known those people and we've probably at least once or twice, especially early in our careers, been those people where yeah. it's three o'clock in the afternoon, you're on the way back to the truck and you find another side. Yep. You know, and, and you, you have to make that you just want to go home, it's hot, it's the end of the week, and you're just like shit but you you stop and you record that site because you know it's the thing you're supposed to do don't yeah. bitch about it you know and if you're, you're working for a for decent money. <laughs> if you're working yeah. for a decent company they'll make up the time they'll do something for you when it but, stops being fun there's yeah. no it's not like you're a quitter it's right. just not fun anymore do something else change your career yeah you know we don't live in the we don't live in a time period where people are working in a factory for 40 years and then having retirement and then uh, thank god we're not doing that i mean i'm on 41 and i'm on my I think third or fourth career when you really look at it. You know, I was in the Navy, I was a commercial airline student, I was doing all kinds of different things. And now I'm an archaeologist. Who knows what I'll be in five years? Yeah. Not yeah. to mention go-go dancer. That was yeah, awesome. I was gonna say go-go dancer was good. You, you forgot yeah. that career, just like yeah. my career as a gambler last night. <laughs> it, was, it was short. I retired in a, a few run. hours. You know, you can have a career that's only a few hours long. Didn't you have a career as like a barista or something? I know. Is that, that was that's well, him. Or, yeah. That's you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. I think he wanted to have a career as a barista. Then he finished the coffee. Then he finished the coffee. <laughs> all right. Well, that all? was that was great. And I think running out of money is not also called retiring from gambling. <laughs> 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 I think that's called the house wins. The house always wins. Yeah. So, so basically, here's the lesson of that, and I'll keep it short, Chris, yeah. because you're looking at your watch. Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, they're going to kick us out. That's why. That's true. That's good. We got to pack our booth. Okay. Up. So here's the lesson about this education thing: learn, keep learning, have fun while you're learning. And don't underestimate the value of a mentor. Yeah. Because those people are going to help you succeed. Yeah. And then as far as college, short of making an entire culture change, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know. I really don't know what the solution to higher ed is. Yeah. I am a student right now, and I work for the Bureau of Applied Research and Anthropology. And the people who come out of that know a lot. They have done interviews. We've written tons of reports. We've helped teach individuals how to do archaeology. We've done archaeology at the highest level. You learn how to write uh, academic journal articles, right? So if you work for BARA at the University of Arizona and you come out, you're going to be really a rounded individual, including the undergrads. The undergrads that work for BARA also go out and do ethnographic interviews. They help write the reports, right? Mm -hmm. But the anthro department at Arizona is a big department and uh, not all of the sections are like BARA mm -hmm. and not all of those students are even given a chance to learn what you do at BARA. So really if, if more of the graduate students at least and the upper division students had organizations like BARA that were doing different aspects of anthropology or archaeology then that's then you're actually in fact getting that right. kind of education. If, if they don't build those kind of organizations and that is not an actual like uh, that's not part of your credit that's your job so it's a separate research institute that's attached yeah. to the university you're not learning any of this stuff in class this isn't part of your classes it's added onto your class mm -hmm. as far as the class and the curriculum I mean they have to move some of these kind of applied methods into the classroom or get the students out of the classroom outside doing some of the applied methods yeah right well i mean there's hope yeah but it's got to be more of this kind of like extracurricular you know vocational oriented mm -hmm. work so i don't know how they're going to fix it i don't know how we can <laughs> learn about like you know witchcraft in the 1600s or something like that and applied 
an applied, <laughs> that's the, applied, that's the next. applied like world archaeology survey. Like, all right, now we're gonna fly to South America. Let's do it, guys. No, that's the name Here of the next PCS video. Is witchcraft in the 1600s? Actually, oh, yeah, sweet. It's actually, uh, yeah. really good. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. um, yeah. Any any final thoughts from Chris or, or Michael? Uh, I just want to add. I mean, you know, again, the, the, the in our in our session, um, this probably will be a whole different episode. So mm-hmm. hopefully, I can participate in that too. But. Um, um, I would say disappointed because I'll be careful, uh, but I will be a bit politically incorrect to say, um, wow, we've been doing this great kind of tour of trying to quote murder archaeology across the country to understand how archaeology has been done in terms of um, the not, not just the transition from paper to digital, but really looking at what the actual information that we're reporting is. Um, and not just in, in thinking of it as, you know, hitting the bottom rung for compliance yeah. you know I am blown away by the quality of the research we're seeing we're here we have the posters here absolutely amazing yeah and I most couldn't of even stuff, understand most of it right it was so high level I was words like, and pictures uh, the, I don't know yeah. chemistry <laughs> that well like, but when I when yeah. I hear when I had we had yeah. so many people come up to us and say you know hey I'm from the in, insert name of agency here and it's like yeah and and what people do is they're handing us in and we love the fact that they hand us paper and CDs yeah CDs yeah. paper and that's the upgraded standard after five years for for the IMAX for Utah you got to be kidding me sorry yeah. we, we we all need to fix this shit it's not okay yeah. it's not okay so that's that's a deal. That's a, like we we got to do better. So I mean, that's that's uh, that. that, that I, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't know if my computers have a CD player. On. I think I have a, a five-year-old computer that still has a CD-ROM on it. I've got one last one, and I had to turn in a BLM report with a negative report on it that was literally two pages and a map, and they wanted two CDs and two unbound copies. We're, we're getting to the point where we'll have yeah. to rent the CD. I was like, we'll have to you know, email Kikos and have them create a CD. Dude, I had, they don't even have that capability on the computer. I have a laptop that's barely living that can still burn those CDs, but I, I was snarky in the email and said, I'll try to find an old Windows machine I can burn these CDs on and I'll get them off to the mail to you. So Send them in snail mail. Send them in snail mail. Yeah. So Anything, Chris? Well, I guess to come back around, uh, I'll try and make this really quick, back around to the idea of the field tech for life kind of thing, yeah. is I think, like, not to diminish that role, I think that there's mm-hmm. My, I think my take on it is there's still value in it, but it's different because in order to do that, you have to be a really strong networker in yeah, order yeah. for that to pay off. And that's your skill. Yeah. And that's the oh, kind of yeah. skill that's going to get you through anything. And that's yeah. not just a skill for a field tech for life. You know, like yeah. early career archaeologists are going to really benefit from that. And I want to have like Sonia and Bill on go dig a hole for that uh, soon. But mid-career and late-career archaeologists too. Like uh, I've learned so much from you about... Uh, chasing down new clients, and you know, because you're a late career archaeologist, so that's what he's saying. <laughs> she's, still, she's still early career. I think. Wait, what? Yeah, all, well, I, I feel like I'm kind of. I'm never going to stop working. <laughs> right. right. As well, as I mean, that's the trick too. Is always be grinding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as we put her out to pasture, we'll glean all the knowledge. Oh then, my god! I know she's yeah. younger than I am. I think. Just remember, there's a camera. Don't hit him. Don't hit him. There's evidence. We're going to take this outside, Chris. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, and any of you guys else who want to join, we're going to take something outside, and for various reasons, I don't want to intimidate her anymore. Um, <laughs> we'll just leave that off the air. But uh, I'm a good girl. That's right. Um, 
All right. Well, that's it for this. Uh, that's it for this uh, first. I think first in-person recording of the Sierra Mark podcast. And the only uh, one. We're not doing this it, again. No, no. Except we are. And we're doing it at the SAs. So yeah. if this is yeah. the first show you've ever listened to, we're doing a forum at the SAs in Vancouver. And the forum is going to be not just us, you know, whoever's there from the podcast network talking to people. We're going to have somebody out in the audience with another recorder and taking questions. And it's going to be an interactive thing about yeah. public archaeology and podcasting. So. Uh, join us for that but in the meantime um, I'll just sign off and say uh, thanks to the listeners for tuning in Um, how do I usually do that thanks to everyone for joining me this week thanks to listeners for tuning in and we'll see you in the field goodbye bye Bye. see ya and then Doug is over in Scotland (laughs) bye (laughs) nice That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash CRM Podcast. If you like the show and want to comment, please do. You can leave comments about this or any other episode on the website or on the iTunes page for the episode. You can also email me at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or use the contact form on the podcast webpage. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or tweet your questions with the hashtag CRMArcPodcast or you can tag at ArcPodNet in your tweet. Please share the link to the show wherever you saw it. If you share CRM archaeology related items on Twitter or Facebook or anywhere else for that matter, be sure to use the hashtag CRMArc so the community can see and comment. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. You can also type the name of the podcast into your favorite podcasting app and subscribe that way. Don't forget to go over to iTunes and leave a review of the show. It helps us get noticed so more people can find our podcast and benefit from the content. Also, send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Also, please consider donating to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Your donations help fund our bandwidth and contribute to our editing costs. presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. We're going raw and unscripted. I know. know. No plan. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info.